Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ tissue and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us, guys, at thegiftedlife.org. Tell your friends. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. And I'm Nyla Schwab. Coming up on the podcast today. How awesome is it when we have an in-studio guest? Love it. Oh, that was and fun. And this one's got a, an incredible story to tell because of a donor hero. Jaw-dropping. Yeah, and we're going to also be talking about when people are in grief, what's going on with their body. A lot of times we see the outward expressions and emotions, but we don't really know what else is going on. Ooh, lots to get to here on The Gifted Life. Thanks for joining us, guys. Here we go. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we are excited to add a little Cajun spice, would you say, Joe? We got a little piece of home for (laughs) some of us here on the podcast crew. We have Ryan Gallet. How are you? Doing good. From Acadiana. Yes, ma'am. Lafayette, Youngsville, Louisiana. Yeah. Joey, where are you from? Yeah, I'm Youngsville. I'm originally, of course, St. Martinville, but no one knows where St. Martinville is. But I am from Youngsville. We actually just realized we only live about two miles apart. Uh, yep. I'm from Acadiana area, born and raised in Dusan. And Nyla, you are? Mississippi. Odd one out. <laughs> but she heard us talking and she said, man, that sounds fun to be a part of that community, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think people from the Acadian area. Is it the Ca- Acadiana? Acadiana? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, y'all can talk. She was getting into our stories. Yeah. (laughs) So we have Ryan here in the podcast studio. You have an entourage with you. Do you need to say any names today, Ryan? Yeah, my wife Christine. My beautiful wife. My beautiful wife Christine. Very caring. (laughs) And of course, Susanna. Susanna uh, Martin with Lope as well. You want to say hi? Oh, we heard you. We heard you. Awesome. So we have a packed house today, but it's because of Ryan's story, honoring his hero and talking about this second chance at life, because what did you receive? What gift are we talking about today? I received the, the gift of, of a new heart last August, August 16th of 2022. Wow. And you look the picture of health, like you came yeah. in here and just, you know, nobody would know if you didn't sit there, work with Susanna and tell your story. But man, your story, we were listening to it. Didn't sound like it was very fun. No, it was a, it was a long journey. Um, but yeah, I mean, thank, thankful for the donation of a, of a heart. I'm I'm almost brand new again. It's it's been a it's been wow. a whirlwind. So take us, Ryan, a little bit uh, back to the beginning. You know, well before even the transplant. So what happened in your life that uh, that made you even have to go down this journey? It's, it started about 19 years ago. Um, I was, I had a massive heart attack, 100% blocked in the LAD artery. Um, didn't, didn't know I was 30 years old, didn't know I was having a heart attack. Um, rushed to the hospital, left arm numb, chest pain, severe chest pain. And when they did, finally did enzyme tests, uh, they rushed me in to the cath lab, put a stent and everything, and I had immediate relief. I, no pain anymore. But unfortunately, it was 30% damage done to my heart that I didn't know at the time, but about three years later, um, I found out, went for another angiogram, found out I was only at 10% heart function at that time. Okay, so what it... What is that 10% function? Like, Ten, to me, you wouldn't be able to walk around or Right. Well, I, I've, I, thank God I was, I was young. I was 30 years old. And doctors told me most the reason why is because I was so young and my body was able to compensate for it. 
So 10%, what I'm, I'm found out through 19 year journey was your heart only pumps. A good, a good, a good function of your heart is 65%. It's kind of like a, kind of like a pump. You want to leave some in the, in the system so it ha- doesn't have to prime again, right? So they leave 35% of blood in the vessel, in the heart, and 65% is what you're left, go to organs. Mm-hmm. So my heart is now at peak performance at 65%. Well, it was at 10%. Honestly, I was able to, yeah, I was, I was a fortunate because I was, I was young, so I was able to walk around. But I've met some people with 10% heart function and said they couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. Did you notice anything? Were you like, what? because I'm like 10%? Yeah, no, I Would did you notice something. get out of bed and be like, well, I'm a little tired today. Even my wife even says to this day, she said, I don't know how you made it 18 years yeah. with only 10% heart function, but my body adjusted to it. Mm-hmm. We have a picture of my native heart after we took it out, and it, it enlarged so much to compensate for the other organs, uh, to compensate the blood to go to the organs. Well, I want to, I want Joey to weigh in from our, our clinical perspective. So you're hearing these numbers and him throwing this out, and we're like, whoa! And you're sitting there like, man, it's funny. Well, he sounds, uh, he should have uh, Ryan Gallet, MD, behind his name because yeah. Right? Right? Yeah, he did a great job. He knows more about the heart than I do at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes and, I feel that way. Yeah, and and you have to kind of learn about that, and that's you know, so usually. We'll hear people who have even a 20% or 25%, so twice the, the, the heart function as, as he had, that are waiting on the, uh, for a heart. So that's how bad, it's very, I've almost never heard under 10%. Like that's as low as, as you'll get where you're still walking around. So I'm impressed that your body was able to compensate as well as, uh, as it did. And it, it wasn't for a short period of time. I mean, I found out I had 10% at 34, and I didn't get my transplant until I was 48. Like, so what does that do mentally? Like, Well, how does at, that... at 30, when I had my heart attack, it was it was a little scary. Yeah. In fact, I— And you had a history, I, like a family history? or I have a family history of heart disease, yeah. but obviously not this to this extent. Right. So, um, but yeah, my mom was one of nine kids, and all of them but her have heart conditions. Mm. In fact, Dr. Oshner— uh, did the f- second triple bypass on one of my aunts that had it at 34. So, so you're familiar with this I'm, I'm, Yeah, the disease itself, yes. I'm, I'm very familiar with so it. So all these years, procedures t- to kind of keep you kicking, functioning. So was donation something that you guys knew about? Was it in the back of your head? Were you we pro-donation or what was that like? Bill Broussard, Mr. Bill Broussard is my mentor. He is we the one at, at 30. We we knew Mr. Bill before transplant mm-hmm. and he's the one that put me in touch with Oshner's. So at 34, after I went do the other angiogram, I had um, they labeled me with V-tachycardia, which is a heart rhythm, dangerous heart rhythm. They call it sudden death rhythm actually. And he's the one that put me in touch with Oshner's. So when I went to Oshner's, the whole plan was going to need a transplant at, at some point. It's hard at 34. It's hard to understand that, man. How am I going to need a heart? I'm 34 years old, you know. Um, and you felt okay. But I felt okay. I mean, I wasn't. The good thing about it about the transplant was they say you'll feel better than you ever have because you never really felt that. I mean, with 10% heart function, even though you felt good enough to to coach softball and everything else, you're going to feel twice as good with a new heart. And it's true. Coach I have a lot softball. more energy. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, so you were really living yeah. like a nor- like a just I was living. I was, I was coaching uh, my daughter. I was coaching my granddaughter's softball. Um, I wasn't playing anymore, unfortunately. I was still hunting, fishing. I was still doing a, a fairly normal life. Now, my wife is is my caregiver, and she's very, very protective of me. So 
she uh, she watched me very close. She's filming on this on the ground. Um, she's sitting. I, I couldn't see Aww. her. Yeah. We love you, Christine. Yeah. And and the thing is, a lot of times you don't realize how sick you are until you're well. Right. Because uh, and sometimes it's a gradual drop. And and obviously yours might have been a little sharper. You know, and what happens with the, you know, if you had a hundred percent blockage, even though they're able to balloon and stent, that damage that that the heart the heart is a big muscle. That's all it is. It's a big giant muscle. And and as you go, as time elapses between the time that it completely occluded, where you started feeling that numbness mm -hmm. and that chest pain to that, to the time it actually opened up, you know, there's some damage that will take place. And the amount of damage just varies on the person. And you just so happen to get a I tremendous the, amount. Yeah, I, I did. It was 30% and it was done to, if I'm not mistaken, it was the right side. It was the left side. Okay, my wife's correct me. It was the left <laughs> side, but the docs did say it, it was it was it was barely beating. It wasn't a heartbeat. It was just like a a quiver, a quiver yeah. almost. Mm. And so, and but but they learned to compensate, and that was one of the reasons why I had the VTAC cardio because there was loose electrical ends. It was electrical issue where it would um, it would pick up a loose end. Like almost like an electrical system, and it would go haywire, and my heart rate would go up to 180 beats a minute, and it was nothing that would take it down other than a strong heart, which I didn't have, or pacemaker defibrillator, which worked for me for at 34 I put one in, and it worked for me for 14 years. That's what I was gonna say. So You're take us take us through that. So you you so you had to put a device in, so you had the VTAC, you know, and and VTAC he mentioned like a death a death rhythm. There's two. So we shock patients when you see us uh, defibrillating. It's a patient that's in VTAC or VFib. Uh, one of those two in there, you know, VFib is a smaller version of a VTAC kind of. And, uh, and so he had what we would actually go, you know, if I saw it in the field and, uh, you know, I put all the leads on him and saw him in that rhythm, I'm going to defibrillate him. You know, I'll clear the whole thing that you'll see on Grey's Anatomy and all that stuff. <laughs> And uh, and he gets shocked. Yeah. So so you go from that to now you need a device because of this. Right. Thirty four. They put a, a pacemaker and a defibrillator. Um, I was pretty comfortable at that point because they kept telling me that, well, now you're protected. Now we can see exactly what's happening to your heart. If something does happen, the pacemaker will either pace it down or they'll, they'll give it a, from what I understand, they'll give it two or three times to pace the rhythm down. After that, they'll charge the defibrillator and it'll shock me. Now, I have been shocked by the defibrillator that I can remember two times. I know while I was under, they tested and everything, but it's I was like shocked twice. It, yeah. it was a pacemaker that was inserted in my chest, and it was shocking. And it's just like like I was, one time it happened, I was sitting on a tractor, and I oh, jumped out my seat my. when I was doing it. So, and, and you didn't know it was about to happen? You well, just, I, I did only because you, I would, what happens when the heart rate rises, I, got it, I would get a little dizzy, but I put my head down. If I picked my head back up and I wasn't all right, it was about to shock me. Wow. I knew my body well enough that I knew that something was coming yeah. if, it, if the pacemaker didn't pick it up. So, yeah, it, it happened, but I, I felt better instantly. The, 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 everything felt better as soon as it shocked me. Did it hurt? I mean, it's not. No, it, it, it shocks you, basically. It got you to where you are it got today, you where right? Right? Thankfully, right. Thankfully, right. thankfully, that technology. Now, and, and maybe we'll get to it later on, but I, I, the second shock ha happened closer to my transplant. Yeah. So, But it did, the pacemaker did a lot of work through the years because 
the pacemaker would work the most to keep that that rhythm down. Yeah, and I do want to talk about those procedures, but you mentioned daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw a, a local TV news story with these two beautiful girls yes, ma'am. who were so happy yes, that ma'am. their dad was here. So, so we know that it impacts you, right? You have yes, this ma'am. stuff going on and you have your caregiver, your wife, but how does, you had those conversations with your, your children of what was happening and where Yeah, I mean, they, they, my, my oldest daughter was probably around, thinking she was probably about 10 years old mm. whenever I had my massive heart attack. So my youngest one was about three or four and she didn't really know a whole bunch of what was going on. Yeah. My 10-year-old did. Mm-hmm. And since then, they were always very protective of, of dad. They knew something was wrong. And, and we were always honest with them. We always told them, yeah, the transplant is, a, is... So they grew up knowing knowing that that was going to happen. So what happened to where you were still cruising? Well, you went from cruising to where, okay, I've got to get put on the list. Well, we'll get to that second shock sooner than I thought. <laughs> we uh, shocked us too. Right? You know, <laughs> I, and I go, by, I use my age as as a to represent all this. Uh, my thirties were pretty good. Yeah. I went through the thirties with uh, still ten percent. The pacemaker still taking my my heart rate down. We've had we did ablations. I think I did three ablations to try to fix. That um, so I'll just explain. Work. I'll explain okay. real quick. And so I mentioned that your heart is a pump. I mean, it's a muscle, and then you have your electrical circuit that goes through your heart, and that's that's your pacemaker. Your internal pacemaker is all electrical a system. Basically, it starts with the, what's called your sinoatrial or your SA node, and then it and then it runs through you, your heart, and then your heart squeezes as the uh, as the electricity is firing through. Right, and that's what keeps your heart pumping the way it's supposed to pump in the rate it's supposed to pump. Now he mentioned that you know, with when you have dead muscle, now you have a short, basically a short circuit in the in the in your electricity, and so so that happens. And every once in a while, that short circuit starts, and it'll start firing wrong, like it'll just misfire, uh, misfire, yeah. misfire, misfire. So they try to figure out where that misfire is coming from. What is so the SA node is supposed to be the, your pacemaker, and it's not working. So now I got to figure out what's what's firing, and then they uh, do an ablation, and they basically just kind of burn it, and right. uh, and and so that now that can't because fire. they actually want you to go while they have you on an ablation, they want to put you into that rhythm because they want to see where that dead tissue is at um, that's sparking. These medical so. advances, wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, wow. so they try to put you through it. Um, so they can see mm. where it's coming from. And, and it's, it was amazing. It worked, you know, every time it worked, but it was always for a, cu- a couple of years. And if I had too many of them, they would say, well, let's do another one. So we've do- done three of them and they've all seemed to work. It was over a course of probably seven years, you know, so forties went through the forties, uh, early forties and it, it went, everything again, went fine other mm-hmm. than having an ablation every now and then, but never got shot. The next time I had I got shocked was in 2021, and that's whenever it was AFib. It wasn't VTAC, which doctors didn't want because every time it would shock me, it would weaken the heart muscle. So they said, well, we don't want it to shock you for AFib. AFib is something that a heart can actually manage and bring down by itself. So what they ended up doing was setting my pacemaker a little higher so pacemaker wouldn't work until 180, uh, 70 beats per minute. So if it got up to 150, it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't damage the heart anymore. So at that point, though, they decided, well, you know, 
we don't want that to happen again. We need to at least start thinking about putting you on a, on a transplant list. Well, so your top part of your heart is no longer working, atrial fib. So you lose 30% of your, your kick of your, so, so already he was working on a 10% and basically he lost, you know, that AFib kick of that 10%. So it even, you know, obviously I mentioned don't, don't get into the single digits, but more or less you would have been more in the, in the single digits right. be, simply because you didn't have the atrium working anymore like it did. So obviously that's going to get you, I'm sure, more tired. and, and Right. Uh, and, and it did. I mean, when you have a VTAC cardia, um, if you imagine you ran five miles no, and you I get back to your <laughs> well, I couldn't either. But <laughs> it, that's how tired you are yeah. after that two minutes of your heart rate going up to 180 beats a minute. And after that, you're exhausted. It's like mm. you just ran. I mean, because that's what happens. Your heart. I'm exhausted listening <laughs> yeah. to this. I mean, I'm taking deep breaths. I'm just like, oh. how did you? How did you mean? Like mentally. I guess because I had lived with it for so long. I mean, it was it was rough it after my heart attack. It was rough, but then I I learned to to manage it because I mean, look, I was still alive at that point. Massive heart attack. I was still alive. Sudden death rhythm. Still alive. So obviously God had a bigger plan for me and he wasn't ready for me. And a couple I think of he times. sent you some pretty good people to be your support system. Yes. Too. It seems like they Absolutely. You up and, and Absolutely. You up. I haven't mowed my grass in nineteen years because she won't let me. So yeah. Nice. She's she's a nice. she's a great caregiver. She doesn't push me. She's a keeper. Yeah, yep. she's definitely yep. a keeper. Oh, yeah. She's definitely a keeper. So when so when it got to hey, transplant, was that shocking what well, like what did that do for your your family we knew that was it was coming so that didn't shock me as much as when it was actually time yeah but no so I, I was actually ready to be on the list knowing that i wasn't actually ready for that transplant i knew it was i want to be on the list because it, it kind of made me feel a little give me a little security knowing that okay when the time comes i'm on the list i'm ready they'll call me you know I never knew if they would. I was a status six. I think it goes up to a status seven, if I'm not mistaken. And then it goes down to obviously you get transplanted at one, two, maybe even three. But I was a status two at transplant. So um, I knew I had a long way to go. But Dr. Krim was one of my, my cardiologists at Oshner's. And he had told me, he said, we need to get you on the list. So if something happens, if you're on the list, we can always bring you down really, really quick. So, and that's what happened, you know. He, he did He did exactly what he told me. Dr. Krim also said through through the 14 years, he said, Ron, you're an outlier. And I never really knew what he was talking about. But he said, there's nobody else that 10% that had the the life, quality of life that you have. So even though you were 10%, you were outliers of all the other 10%ers that were out there. So. We're sitting here in awe because, right. because yeah. of that. You're a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So walk us through transplant and then life after transplant because okay. you did spend time in the hospital. You had some hospital living, huh? I did. I did. Um, honest with you, the um, every year that you're on transplant, you have to do certain tests. Well, one of the tests is a right heart cath. You have to do every year while you're on transplant. I'd been listed transplant in May of 21. Mm -hmm. In May of 22, we went to. I actually went came from my daughter's softball in well, with granddaughter, softball tournament in Livingston. In fact, that's your neck of the woods, right? That's right. You can't be so, Yeah. And um, in, the, in the sun, I mean, everything was fine. I, I still managed a pretty good life. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I hadn't packed 
the, for the Monday appointment. I was going to do a right heart cath. I was going home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I hadn't, until I did the right heart cath and Dr. Desai came back and said, well, Ron, your, the pressures around your heart are half of what they were last year. So we're going to, uh, you're not leaving without a heart. So she did, I, I say that, but she did give me two options. We didn't take, the options were you can go, go for a week, get your things together, pack, and come back. Or you can stay here and you'll be listening, you, you'll be put in ICU. Well, my thinking was there's nothing I can do in a week. There's right. nothing. Right. But I couldn't miss out on a transplant within that week. Mm. So I decided, we decided, me and my wife decided, well, best thing to do, I don't want to go home and something happened to me. So we're going to stay here. If I'm, that, if I'm that critical, which I didn't feel critical, I didn't feel like I, did, I needed to be in the ICU either. Mm. But um, I was. I was sitting uh, sent to the ICU. And from there, they started doing preparations for the transplant. The first thing they did was they did a balloon pump that went in through my groin and I had to stay in there for about three weeks. And that was just to keep my heart mm. pumping, give it a break so it was rested for the transplant itself. Yeah. The only bad thing about uh, that is you have to, you can't, can't sit up more than 18 degrees. So you eat, you sleep, everything is 18 degrees. It was... It was uncomfortable at the very least, but they only leave that in for about three weeks. After that, they decided we're gonna we're gonna do something where you can walk and stay, you know, active. And that was the impella. I don't know if you have ever heard of an impella, mm -hmm. but an impella is is another device that surgically put in the chest, and it would beat for my my native heart, so it could rest. I'd be ready for, a, I'd have a strong, a stronger heart that can make it through surgery. So I feel like you're a professor. Well, <laughs> and I'm going to explain what this is because obviously you're looking like you don't know. We, <laughs> so that's great. Glad he's looking at you. <laughs> we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot. We learned a lot about the impella, about the heart function itself. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm nowhere near a professor, but what happened to me, I know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you receive the heart. I okay from the impeller we stayed in ICU at Oshner's Hospital for nine weeks. Now um, they were very optimistic because we went in the hospital June 13th, and they said, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but the Fourth of July is coming. We receive a lot of transplants, donors on the Fourth of July. You know, a lot of people traveling. A lot Folks of people on the road. Unfortunately, yeah. that that was. They were very optimistic that I would probably receive one come that day. It didn't happen. A little discouraged, but I was still in good shape, believe it or not, and I was still walking up and down the halls. We'd go outside. We'd go by the swimming pool. So I was still very, very active. Of course, I was doing it with monitors and everything else. So nine weeks after, I think there was another holiday. Is it Memorial Day, Christine, or Labor Day? And that came and went, and I didn't get one. So I was I was a little discouraged. I was ready mm -hmm. at nine weeks, even though we had some, we made family with the nurses over there because it was when you have an impella, it's a one on one nurse patient ratio. So we really made very good friends, family, and um, so every day was a different day. It was making new friends and everything. Even though I was in the hospital, ICU, I. 
it's not what you think, you know, critical care is. Like, you're on your deathbed, and mm-hmm. I never felt that way. So, finally, the, the this was, honestly, I asked my wife, I said, baby, I said, do you think that was the best day of our life? Everybody says, well, when your kids are born, and this and that. Well, you're scared when your kids are born, because you're a new parent, so you really don't know. But that is a... That was one of the best days of our life. Dr. Desai came in there and said, we have a match for you, and it's a perfect match. And, of course, they don't, they don't give you 100% because they still send a doctor to check out that heart, one of your doctors to check out the heart. They did, came back, and everything was good. And it's not as – it's funny because it's not as quick as I would have thought. I would have thought, okay, well, they came in. They're going to rush me out right away. I had – Probably, I think it didn't happen for another 18 to 24 hours after that I actually had the transplant, you know. And you were talking about the two girls that I have. Well, if any of y'all have girls, y'all know that you know, you can't tell one without telling the other. Who's you going to tell <laughs> one first? So I had to make a group text, mister. Uh, I, was, I was very smart. I made a group of just them two. <laughs> because when I, and, and it was FaceTime. So immediately... When they saw the FaceTime, they both started crying. They knew exactly what was happening, that, you know, Pop had finally got the call that he was waiting for. So it, it was, oh, yeah, it was a very special day for us. We'll never, I'll never forget that day, never. When, when they gave me the news that I was getting a heart, my mindset kind of switched. Okay, well, I wanted a heart, but now it's a different lifestyle. Now it's, you know, you have to worry about rejection. You have to have rejection meds. You have to worry about what you eat and what you don't, which before I did as well. But this time, I got a new heart now. I got to take care of it. What, it's it's going to be a different, it's going to be a change. And that's what I'm, I was worried about. The surgery, I was never worried about because the, the, the rate, when I, when I went there 14 years ago, they said the success rate is 98.5% successful. I mean, that's that's hard to believe that, you know, I, I, didn't, I was never worried that it wasn't going to be successful. I was worried about the after. The after was pretty uh, pretty rough on my wife, not as much me, because they, they'd given me, I think, 1,200 milligrams of steroids before the surgery, 1,200 milligrams of steroids after the surgery. So it kind of had a, a reverse effect on me. I stayed up for three days, and I hallucinated for three days. Called the cops because I was being held hostage, you know, by the nurses. And my wife had to see – my wife and my mom would, they had never left my side. And they had to see all of that, you know, for three days until mm. I finally fell asleep. When I fell asleep, everything went away. That was probably, and she she would admit to you, was the worst part of the th- of it because there was health, there wasn't huh? a lot of pain. Um, there was no complications. It was that was the next three days were rough, wow. were rough, really rough. Well, and so you're telling your story. It's very raw, real, open. Um, and I know that Susanna says, "Man, I had this really amazing volunteer who comes out and allows these folks." to hear his story and to ask him so they can understand mm-hmm. about donations. So we love that you're volunteering. Oh, but we understand that when you volunteer, you, you don't go alone. I never go alone. <laughs> I never go alone. You, you will definitely see my wife, Christine, with me everywhere, for sure. And if the girls aren't working, they'll be there as well. And if it's summer, you'll probably see grandkids as well, too. You do so as a family. We were, we were family. We were a very close family before, um, but now even more. Even more because I think they realize that life can be taken away that quick. So enjoy the time that you have. And we do. We, we, we were all together this past, since Friday. Both the girls, the grandkids, my mom, dad, my brothers. And it's not just my immediate family. It's, it's all of our families that, that appreciate 
every life. day now. Yeah. Appreciate life. Every day. So when you go out, do you do you like telling your story? Is it difficult? I do. For you to I, tell I do. Your story? I like telling it. Uh, at first, I was. I didn't. I wasn't ready. I didn't want to see any pictures. They have a lot of pictures of me when I was um, under. I didn't like that. I was swollen, didn't like that. But now it's 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 getting easier, and I feel like it's the least I can do to tell the story. Um, and I hope we we me and Susanna do a lot at some of the schools, the, the colleges, and and I ask them every time. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. I'm not going to try to change your mind. But I ask, have I changed your mind? Have I changed your mind about donation? Give you something to think you know? about. Right. It yeah. gives them something to think about. And, mm. and it, like she says, it's okay if I don't change your mind. But I'd like to educate you and let you know that you may, it may not happen to you, but it may happen to your dad. It may happen to your, your son. It may happen to somebody that you know. Mm-hmm. And how would you be affected by it? Mm-hmm. You know, Because this, this didn't just affect me. It affected my wife. Mm-hmm. She had, now has a husband again. Yeah. It affects my kids. They have, now have their father again. My grandkids, they have a pop. My mom, mom, she she didn't lose one of her twin boys, you know. So, yeah. Twin. I I'm a been, twin. I don't think I've talked because I've been holding my breath. I mean, my, <laughs> but I mean, your story's just like a, wow. And then you do such a great job. It's like thanks, professor. Dude, it's just all the <laughs> kindness. You seem to be just this walking miracle over well, and over. Grateful, and over. Like you admit yeah. joy. You know, grateful. I am. I'm very grateful. But I, I told, and this is one of uh, Susanna's favorite parts, and and I really mean it because my wife says. Over and over and over again, she said, Ryan, you're like America. You're my hero. I said, oh, absolutely not. I said, I did what somebody else gave me, you know, the donor in all aspects, which we don't know yet, is the hero. Mm -hmm. I mean, because without him, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. So have you reached out to your donor family? We did last August while we were still in the hospital. We wrote a letter. We well, we wrote a letter, gave it to Lopa. Lopa does procedural Things with that and send it to the family. Um, and we you, still I think haven't you've been heard. working with Libby. We have been working with Libby. Libby Harrison. She Libby. knew she knew it wasn't from Louisiana because she's obviously the representative for Louisiana. She and she hadn't got. She knew the heart mm-hmm. didn't come from Louisiana. So at that point, we wrote a letter. We hadn't received anything back. Me and my wife are very hopeful because we do want to meet the family. Oh, we do want yeah. to. We want to take a picture with it. We want to let her listen to the heartbeat. We want to do everything that I'm getting chills thinking a, a about grateful this. a grateful person mm. should do. You know, mm. um, we we pay for their way to, to come down here because we don't know their situation. We don't know what happened. So yes, we wrote a letter and we're waiting for them to respond. It's going to be a year in August, so we'll probably write another letter. As I told you earlier, we'll probably send pictures because we want them to know who they're dealing with. We want to know, okay, look, this guy's pretty healthy. Yeah, you, know, you this look guy, healthy. Yeah. And it's you trying to great. save more lives using save our more story lives. now. That's yeah. correct. That's correct. That's beautiful that your your persistence and wanting to write. Because we tell families or, or recipients, write again if you haven't heard because you don't always get a response. But that you're continuing to We will. We, we're going to continue that. and and. With, with I think Miss Li- uh, not Miss Libby, but Susanna had told me one time that there was a, a a family that hadn't heard in five years. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay, but eventually yeah. they they wrote back. We so, have families reach out ten years later. Yeah. It's it's or longer. So we're not going to give up hope. And and I and if I don't yeah. ever hear from them, that's okay. Yeah. You know. But that you but took we the really time do to want do that. To meet, yeah. It's so it's so beautiful. I mean, we could talk to you all day, right? Southern right. hospitality. We're going to talk mm-hmm. all right. day. Yep. Um, and we're gonna. 
open it up. You can come back anytime. We love that you're volunteering with Lopa. But um, your sweet wife was sharing some words uh, when we took a little break. And she goes, y'all had 18 years mm-hmm. of heart, how did she say it, of, of sickness. Mm-hmm. And now we're trying to find where we are now. Our new normal. A new normal. Our new normal. Because yeah. it's, it's very, you know, it could be stressful. For me, it's not. I, I'm, I'm at peace right now knowing that I have a second chance. So my mind's at peace. But it's got to be hard for a caregiver that's not actually going through the physical parts of it, probably wishing it was her, you know, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, someone you love. It's, it's hard on her. But it, for me, I'm at peace knowing that, you know, I got a new heart. I got a second chance. I'm going to make the most of it, whatever that is. And we're trying to work through that um, to find our new normal, to find what the things I can do that – because. Even though I, I'm, I want to think I'm my, my heart is brand new. There's still a lot of precautions you got to take because my immune system is extremely low. Um, so you can't do all the things that you used to be able to do. If you get picked by a hook, I like to fish. If I get picked by a hook, all of a sudden that could be lead to a hospital visit. Ron, your story is hope and gratitude. I mean, I just there's so many words to describe it. I need a picture of you and your wife to just put like inspiration yes right there every day Uh, to see it thank you and we're so grateful you came into our studio today that you brought your entourage Mm -hmm. i'm gonna fight Susanna to get you to move to baton rouge (laughs) if you don't mind (laughs) well i'll I'll travel but i'm not moving i'll I'll definitely travel Susanna's already told me no i got denial letter oh man uh but we appreciate you joining us you and christine thank you so much uh for teaching us uh for letting us ask these questions poke your brain and your heart yes ma'am and for honoring your your donor and paying it forward so thank you so much for your volunteer work. Um, open seat here on The Gifted Life. We'd love to continue learning with you and go on and do great things. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Appreciate all of y'all. on the Gifted Life podcast. We're taking a moment for mental health. And Nyla, what are we talking about today? Help me out with my mental health. (laughs) I need it. You know, okay, this is how I I thought of this one to talk about because when we think about grief, you see people sad and you see people, you know, tears, you see the outward things going on. Right. But um, I had this friend that came, I hadn't seen her in a while, actually a young person. And she said, I'm really... I'm really struggling with anxiety and I, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, why are you struggling? Like, have you ever had it? And she said, no, never. And and then we, were, we kept talking and she explained that her and her boyfriend had broken up. And I was like, girl, you're in grief. And she said, no, Cleveland Clinic just has a, had a great, like what happens to your body in grief and anxiety, heart palpitations, all these things going on. And so it made me start thinking about when we're talking to families, how there's just more than what we see. And we miss that. Uh, and, and so when families are sitting in front of us or somebody that you love has lost someone, it made me realize that they are so fragile and can be so precious because there's just internal and external. So, I, you know, you can have um, joint pains. You can have inflammation. I mean, come on, Joey, you probably know some of this stuff. Um, not being able to sleep, no appetite, uh, fatigue, headaches, nausea. That's grief. And that's grief. Mm-hmm. And then well, so it's funny when I was reading this off to this, this young girl, she goes, I have all those. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, girl, you're you're in But grief. I don't know if I would have equated it with grief, just like, I'm just exhausted. But from that, but I don't know if I'd have said, oh, that's a direct, yeah. you know. And, and, and I think that in our our world that we sometimes think grief is losing someone, but it can be a breakup. It can be, gosh, it can be, it can be anything that causes us not to feel normal, a loss. I've explained that to people when I was trying to have a baby for years and years. It's, it's a different grief, but it's grief. Like yeah. it's a grief of, mm. of, it's still an absence. It's something that we're yearning for. And we were like struggling with all of those things that you're talking about. Our daily lives were, were uh, affected. Mm. You know, I know we, I just read a book recently in one of our leadership um, trainings and, and he talked about in the book that uh, things like that cause your cortisol level to rise. And that's a big part of, so your hormones are actually changing and increasing and all of those manifestations are based on those hormone changes that it causes your apprehension, anxiety, heart rate to, to go up, your stress level, you know, to go up and things like that. Yeah. So I just, you know, I was just thinking that we need to be very thoughtful and mindful that when someone loses anything, a job, um, I mean, of course, someone that they love, um, a pet, you know, trying to have a child, miscarriage, all these things. There's so much more than what we see. Yeah. And uh, my best friend moved. That was hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. You're right. And sometimes we You're don't right. even realize, like, mm-hmm. this young girl yeah. did not realize she didn't make the connection. Mm-hmm. That's why we need a Nyla in our lives. Yeah. You see, that's why we check in with you all the <laughs> time. Oh, keep checking in. Because yeah. I, I mean, I, I just think we help each other. And I will say this we become the expert of our own story. Right. And I tell you, one person that has helped me, gosh, as a family advocate, as a um, aftercare coordinator is my coworker, Libby, mm-hmm. lovely Libby, mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, she has walked me through her own grief journey mm-hmm. and, you know, grief doesn't stop mm-hmm. and she has, it evolves. And with her beautiful story, her painful story and her challenges and she's always so, so generous to share that with others. It's taught me to be a better person. It's taught me to be more aware. It's taught me how to talk about grief. So I think we need each other because there's one thing that we learned with our guest today. He said, you just never know. Like life, we don't control life. And he is walking life of gratitude and and living life, even though he's been up against all these obstacles. And I think that that is such a hope for people. Let's learn from each other and care for each other and keep moving forward. Yeah, I like it. You have a question you'd like us to cover here at The Gifted Life? All you have to do is email us info at thegiftedlife.org. Here in our question and answer segment today, Joe, I think this will be for you to field. How long is an organ viable once it's recovered for donation? Well, Laurie, uh, we can go back actually to our story with Ryan, and he spoke about how, you know, he was expecting that he was just going to get rushed yeah. to the OR, the recover, the transplant was going to take place, and he mentioned 18 to 24 hours later, he still wasn't in the operating room yet, and a big part of that is because of this, is because you know, the, the organs have a very short time frame where they can where they can last outside of blood flow. And what we call that is a cold ischemic time. 
traditional way of calling it. And your heart traditionally has about four to six hours. Your lungs also have the same. Liver has a little longer, six to 12 hours. Kidneys, pancreas, and intestines have generally a little longer than that, 24 hours. They say up to 36 hours or so, usually around 24 to 36 hours. Now, the reason I tied it back to him is because we have to make sure that during the workup process that the homes are found for each organ. The matches are made before the actual uh, organ Recover, organs yeah. are recovered so that this time can actually, uh, so that we can minimize the time that, that organs are out of the body. Now, on previous episodes, even in the last couple of episodes, we discussed a lot about machine perfusion technology, how much that's changed and grown through the last just even four and five years that's expanding these time frames significantly. Uh, so, uh, you know, with the heart machine that's out there and the lung machine, lung perfusion machine, they're all different names and things, so I won't get into that. But the liver now has a machine that they all allow for warm, normal temperature, blood, oxygenated to blood, blood to be perfused through each of these organs. And, uh, and they expand this time frame up to possibly 24 hours. Now, we don't know that time just yet. We don't know that uh, exactly where, where that's going to end uh, because, again, these are fairly new and medical uh, research takes a while for, you to, for, for them to be able to find that, I guess, that sweet spot, that, that time frame that is very safe. But what we are seeing, uh, especially uh, like as an example, we talked about the HIV heart donor from Louisiana. That was on a previous episode. That, that recipient was in New York. And that wouldn't have happened in this short time frame. Uh, but because of the m machine perfusion technology that was there, it allowed that ex ex expanded time frame uh, to take place. So the traditional time frames, I think, are, will be going away eventually. Uh, again, it's still hours, not days. There's no bank. There's no place that we can store an organ just yet. You know, there's a lot of research on that as well. But, uh, but it looks very promising to where we're going to be able to expand the geographical imprint of where we can actually allocate the organs. Pretty amazing stuff. If you have a question, give us a call, 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Tony Clark. And we learn about Tony from his family. My daddy was the hero in someone's story. He donated his eyes, and coming from someone that is legally blind and can barely see, it's a blessing. He was able to help someone else see. My daddy loved hunting and fishing, God and all of his family. I miss praying with my daddy and talking about God with him. My daddy used to have all the neighborhood kids and my cousins outside playing football, baseball, or going fishing. He was like that. He loved to help. I fussed at him a lot for picking up hitchhikers who were walking on the road. I'm so glad that he was able to help someone in need. We pause and say thank you to Tony Clark for the gift of life. Thank you. 
And that's going to do it for episode 220 of The Gifted Life. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime. Registerme.org. Always so special when we do have an in-studio guest, you know, to be able to pick up off of their energy. And he was such a ball of energy. He was great to talk to. Love learning from him. Having Ryan. both We had both Ryan and Christine in here. And and, uh, what a great couple. What a great family. And, and the conversations that we were able to have even on and off the air, it is, uh, you can truly see how much he appreciates life, appreciates his donor hero and that family, and then is so intentional about everything that he's doing going, you know, moving forward to pay it forward, you know, to, to those who are uh, also waiting. And his caretaker, his wife yeah. also. Uh, grateful for the gift of life. His daughters, they go together. They volunteer with Lopa. I mean, you got to love it, paying it forward. Uh, we hope you listen to that story and others. The best place to find us, guys, is at our website. We learn together. It's thegiftedlife.org. Listen there and find links to listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating because it really helps people find us. And on social media, we know you're on social media, Joey. Yes, I am. Facebook, our page is The Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. We'd appreciate seeing you there as well. Our ask is that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Until next time. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Nala Schwab. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 